Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, in honor of Valentine's Day, we're going to continue our study through Luke's gospel today. So if you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, Luke 19, we actually will be skipping a few verses. We're going to be skipping verses 28 through 44 for now. Um, those are the verses that describe Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to, at the beginning of Holy Week on Palm Sunday. Um, and so, so that was the, the Sunday before the Friday when he would be crucified and the Sunday when he would rise from the dead. Uh, the reason that we're skipping that now is we're going to circle back around and cover that passage on Palm Sunday, um, which is coming up on March 28th. And so the passage that we'll look at today happens on the next day. So this will be Monday of Holy Week. Um, so it's Monday with Friday going to be the crucifixion and Sunday going to be the resurrection. And so, so that's the, the setting here. But let's pray and then open up the scriptures. Uh, Father, we come to you today and, and you do not need uh, our permission to point out the ways that we need to change today. We don't need to give you permission to lay claim to our lives because our lives are already yours. You gave us all of our, you gave us every breath. You sustain us every second. We're yours completely. So we couldn't be so arrogant as to think that you need our permission to tell us the truth. But we do ask today that you would speak to us by your spirit and by the sword of your spirit, which is the word of God. We pray that you would do this in a way that only you can do it, by, by helping us not only to hear your word today, but to love it, to desire it, to really repent and obey it. We need you to change us, and so we pray that you would impart to us your, your powerful word. We, we need Jesus today, so we pray that you would give him to us and show him to us again today. Show us our need for him, show us his goodness so that we run to him instruct us today. We pray that you'd rebuke us, that you would forgive us, and that you'd comfort us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he has been headed to Jerusalem since the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel. Um, but, but in reality, he was headed there for, for much longer than that. In fact, the prophet Malachi, 500 years before the birth of Christ, wrote this. This is Malachi 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Behold, I, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages." the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So it had been prophesied that the Lord would come into his temple and that he would judge, the, he would judge what he saw there, that he would purify the temple, that he would refine it, and that he would be a witness against all of the things that people were doing wrong with his temple. And so now we pick up in Luke 19, half a millennium after Malachi predicted it, Luke 19, verse 45 it says, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, 
for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus goes into this temple on on Monday of Holy Week, and he drives out those who bought and sold. Mark's gospel tells this story, and he says that Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers, the people who were exchanging currency there. Matthew says he flipped over the seats of the people who were selling pigeons. He's pronouncing judgment at the temple. He's cleansing the temple. He's refining the temple. And while Jesus is deliberate and self-controlled and Jesus never sinned, he's definitely expressing some anger here at what he sees in the temple. So today we'll do three things. We'll, We'll talk about what he saw in the temple that made him angry. We'll ask some of the hard questions about whether he might see some of that in us. And then we'll talk about the the solution for all of that. So what is it that he saw in the temple? He comes to the temple, and this is Passover time. So this is the busiest time of the year there. This is the time when the Jews and converts to Jerusalem from all around the world would converge on the temple to worship, to offer sacrifices, to participate in the prayers of the believing community from all around the world. And the temple was a good thing that had been set up by God. The big message that the temple was supposed to drive home was the message of Hebrews 9.22, which says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So these sacrifices were offered in the temple, and, and they were offered to remind everybody that there had to be blood spilled for sin to be paid for. That, that we are guilty, we have fallen short of God's glory, and that someone needs to pay for that. And and ultimately, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that would take away sin, but all of those things, all of the sacrifices, all of even the architecture of the temple, it was all a pointer to Jesus. It all symbolized Jesus, who would come and shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. Everything that the temple taught, everything that was foreshadowed, all, all pointed to Jesus. So that was the biggest reason that the temple mattered, that it was a huge pointer to Jesus and his blood that would be shed for our sins. On top of that, we just cannot overstate how important this temple was to the life of the Jews. This temple mattered more to them than Mecca does for Muslims today. It meant more to them than any church building could ever mean to us today. It was the only place where sacrifices were made. And it was the place where God was not only worshipped, but God showed up there. His presence came down on the temple. God's glory was there. So people converged there. And, and at this time of year, some people would even be making a once-in-a-lifetime trip to the temple. If they traveled from far away, rather than bringing livestock with them to sacrifice, they would just bring some cash. They would buy a lamb there, which was not a bad idea in itself. If you've ever taken a road trip with like a big dog in the car or something like that, you know how difficult that can be. Imagine going on feet for, for weeks with a lamb. And so God actually made provision for some of their offerings in the Old Testament that they were allowed to just bring some cash, buy that sacrifice on site, and then make the sacrifice there with the animal that they had purchased. So that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. thing. And the way it started out was that outside the temple gates on the slope of the hill facing the temple, a marketplace got set up. And so people could come to town, they could change their money for Hebrew money, they could pay a temple tax, they could buy the animal that they would sacrifice, and then go into the temple to worship. So so that by itself wasn't bad. The, The sin in this situation was not in the stuff. The sin wasn't in the marketplace, the sin wasn't in the money, it wasn't even in the buying and selling, it was somewhere else. Because we live in a real world that was made by God where where the sin is not in the stuff that He makes. There's a place for business, there's a place for selling, there's a place for even being a consumer, 
But at one point, the, the leaders of the temple, the religious leaders, they looked across the valley, they saw those businesses thriving, and they thought, there's some profit to be made off this thing. So they moved that marketplace into the temple courts. Because once they got it in the temple courts, then they could control it. Then they could say, yeah, if you're going to offer an animal as a sacrifice, you've got to buy one of our animals. And these are expensive. These are kind of like brand name animals where you got to get the good one. And, and so those are the only ones that are going to be acceptable here. So people would, would be charged exorbitant rates so that they could buy the animals to sacrifice. Then they would take that money that they accumulated and they built an empire. They would loan that money out to landowners around them during hard times, and then they would quickly foreclose on their land if the people weren't able to make their payment with exorbitant interest rates. So they were building this empire off the business of sacrifice and off the business of the temple. And then to make room for this market on the temple grounds, they put it in the outer court of the temple complex, which was the court of the Gentiles. This was the place that, that God had said they were to reserve for, for prayer and worship by people who weren't ethnically Jewish. This is for the people who converted to the Jewish faith from the outside. It was for the people who, by pedigree, would have been considered to be farthest from God, but they could come there and meet with God. So imagine what this would do to you. You live in a faraway land, and maybe some Jewish families have moved there. They've set up a synagogue. You've gone in to hear what this is all about, and you start to believe in this God that they're talking about. You, you hear about the temple as they read the Old Testament, and the temple was the place where God's presence was. They would sing songs about the temple. They would say that it was the joy of the whole earth. They sang, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. This was the most important place on earth, the most beautiful place on earth. So you would maybe save up for years to make a trip to Jerusalem. You would make that long trip, maybe travel for weeks to get there, and you would come into the temple and see not the glory of God that you were looking for, but a chaotic marketplace. They expected this holy experience, but they got Black Friday at Best Buy. And that was worship. They were supposed to be able to pray there. They were supposed to be able to look around and see thousands of believers from around the world worshiping God, but they came in there and they got ripped off. Some of them probably couldn't afford those sacrifices, so they weren't allowed to worship like everybody else if they were poor. The poor are, are being excluded. Business is booming, but those who are far from God are kept away. Not, these non-Jews didn't even have a place in the temple courts. So Jesus comes in and goes after that. In fact, in verse 46, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56, verse 6, this is what, what Isaiah the prophet had written. He's writing, speaking for God, and he says, The foreigners who, jo who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. So notice he's in including the outsiders. He says, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they're shepherds who have no understanding. 
They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. So notice there's kind of a contrast here, where, where God first lays out his plan for all peoples. That this would be a place where it wouldn't just be Jews coming to worship, but foreigners who had converted in. The outcasts from Israel would come to, to believe in God in foreign lands, and then they would come and be part of this house of prayer that's for all nations. God was building this community of worshipers from all peoples, and he was making sure, he was making extra sure that the outsiders had a place there. That repentant people from all around the world could gather and worship the same God. But then in the second part of Isaiah's prophecy, there's an obstacle to that happening. Verse 11, it's the wicked shepherds. The shepherds who are like dogs, always just trying to satisfy their own appetite. Shepherds who don't understand the heart of God, who, who are working only for their own gain, and who cared little for outcasts and cared a lot for themselves. They weren't using the temple for what it was supposed to be used for. This was supposed to be that place where there was a focus on God, where the motive for being inside was worship, where the love of God was enjoyed. It was supposed to be the most beautiful place on earth, the place where sacrifices were made to remind everyone of the need for blood to be shed for us to approach God. But because it was shed, it was the place where guilty consciences were, were set at ease, where weight was lifted, where you experienced the glory of God. It was a place for Sabbath-keeping and rejuvenation, and ultimately, it was a place that would point people to Jesus and lead people to Jesus. That's what it was for. But these shepherds made it all about everything but those things. And so now it became a place that was expensive, where you get ripped off. So that meant that preferential treatment was given to the rich. It really looked more like a, a mall than a place of worship. They had moved from the worship of the creator to the worship and service of the created thing. That place for the presence of God had become a marketplace, and the, the place that was supposed to be promoting Jesus was now dead set against him. And Jesus attacks that. And we kind of like the Jesus who attacks that. In fact, like this Jesus flipping over tables in the temple motif is a pretty popular one on the internet. And, and you'll see that like, if there's a Christian who's misbehaving on the internet and saying something that's just sort of like unnecessarily rude and offensive, they'll make their post, and it's inevitable that someone will reply and say, you should be more Christ-like, and then that they will reply and say, well, Jesus flipped over tables. That's, just, that's all I'm doing. I'm just flipping over tables here. And, and so we, we tend to see ourselves in this story as the good guy who's flipping over the tables, and, and just like Jesus was righteous in his anger here, and he was, I must be righteous in mine. But the thing is, that's not the right way to read these stories. I mean, for one, we do have to realize the uniqueness of Jesus here. First of all, he owns this place. This is his father's house. So he can do what he wants there. On top of that, Jesus is perfect and holy. His character is always totally right. He's totally righteous. So he's right to be angry at these things. He has a place to, to speak in this way. His anger definitely isn't sin because there is a place for righteous anger. But for us, we shouldn't think that we're being him when we're sending nasty emails and throwing around angry accusations on Facebook and saying, I'm just flipping over tables. That's not how we should read these things. In fact, we shouldn't read this story and first ask, how can I flip over tables like Jesus did? Because we read this as Christians. 
As Christians, we're people who have admitted that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've admitted our own frailty. We've admitted our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, our own rebellion against God. So what we should ask first as we read these stories is not how should I flip over tables like Jesus, but we should be asking which of my tables would Jesus be flipping over? Because again, we assume that we would be on team Jesus when he's flipping tables and taking names. But let's not be quite so quick to assume that we wouldn't be the people manning the cash registers that he's chucking across the temple courts. Because there are a bunch of sins here that Jesus sees in them that he probably often sees in us. We'll just look at a couple of them today. But we'll look at them in in the hopes that we will repent and that we won't be like the things that Jesus saw that, that made him so angry here. I mean, one thing he saw was the exclusion of the nations from the presence of God. By setting up this marketplace in the court of the Gentiles, this was treating the Gentiles like they weren't important. In fact, this was just kind of a common notion among the the Jews of that day, that when the Messiah came into the temple, they knew he would come to purify the temple, and so they just assumed that he would remove the impurities, and in their mind, the impurities were the Gentiles. They thought that Jesus would come into the temple, and he would purify the temple of the Gentiles. But here, Jesus comes into the temple, and he purifies it, but he purifies it for the Gentiles. He does this to make a place for them. He he cleanses it, but it didn't need to be cleansed of what they thought it needed to be cleansed of. They thought that, that holiness and purifying of their religion meant purifying their religion from people not like them. And Jesus shows that that pure and holy religion looks like caring for and welcoming people not like them. And it's so easy for religious people who want to recapture the goodness of, of their religion to want to purify the faith community and then to slip into the trap of assuming that that means cleansing the religion of people not like me, as if I only bring purity to the whole mixture. And so we'll say, you know, I want to worship with people that, that I feel safe around, which often will mean people right around my age, people right around my level of education, my economic class, people who like my music, people who look like me, people of my race, people who share my background. It seems like that would be the authentic community. But Jesus shows here that God is building a community of worshipers from the nations. That that the pure community is not the community that's been purified of people not like me. The pure community is the group of people from all nations that are coming together and worshiping Christ. And so when you see someone who comes in to worship and they're clearly different, whatever the difference is, whether it's race or education or traditions or culture or background, and if you have for a second any sense that that will make my church not what it should be, then aren't you doing the same thing that Jesus flipped over tables because of? Because in Christianity, the ground is always level at the cross. God wants all nations. He wants peoples from all nations. And, And when he reaches people from all nations, he doesn't stack them in a hierarchy where some are more important than others, but side by side, they worship Jesus. They have the same access to his glory. And if we treat the other like they're less important or less welcome, less to be greeted, less a part of the church... We're excluding the nations, just like they did. 
So that's one way we might do this. One way we might exclude the nations by thinking that Christianity is mainly for my people, my nation, when Jesus says this is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Another way we might exclude the nations is by jumping on what's become kind of a politically correct bandwagon that says that to spread the gospel to non-Christian peoples is somehow wrong. Maybe you haven't noticed it, but there's kind of a notion that's floating around that it's fine if we practice Christianity, but if we spread it, especially if you go to another nation or another culture to spread Christianity, then you're somehow doing something wrong. Somehow you're, you're being a colonialist. Somehow you're, you're being a white supremacist if, you, if you're doing that. We don't spread the gospel to other cultures. We, they, we want them to just exist authentically in their culture. And so we have the idea sometimes even that floats around that missions and missions trips are somehow wrong and arrogant. Now, I know there is some truth in that. I mean, what we don't want to do, there's a wrong way to do missions. If our goal is to convert people from every nation to be Americans, we're way off base. In fact, we're missing out on the fact that everybody from all cultures, whether it's America, whether it's somewhere else, to turn to Jesus, we all need to turn from the idols of our culture and turn to trust in him. So if you go to a Turkish village and try to convert them to being, being Americans, you're definitely doing missions wrong. You shouldn't try to convert them to our language or our foods or our neutral cultural customs. They're Turkish, and they should be Turkish Christians. But we do call them, alongside people from all nations, to turn from idols and to turn to Christ, to trust in his cross, to worship him and him alone. And they'll worship him in very Turkish ways. They'll have some unique idols they turn from, just like we do, Their expressions of of worship, their expressions of church will certainly be different than ours. And it's also true that once we've preached the gospel to a people and established churches, let's step out of the way when we're in a foreign culture and let them run with it because their church exists side by side to ours, not underneath ours. But we do want to obey the God who's called us to convert people from every nation. He has a plan that people from all nations would come to him. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So God has this plan that people from all nations would come to faith in Christ. That was the plan for the temple, and that was the plan for for the age that we're living in, that people from all nations are coming to know him. And the reason that that's important is because there is only one way. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So our desire unashamedly is that people from every nation and culture would turn from sin and idols and turn to trust in Jesus. And while we're right to say that we don't try to convert people away from their whole culture, we're wrong to say that we don't spread the gospel to every culture because God welcomes the nations. In fact, look where things are headed. This is Revelation 9. As you kind of fast forward and see where things are going, this is what what John writes in Revelation as he sees this vision of what things are like in heaven. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what God's doing. He's drawing the nations. So don't exclude the nations. Don't exclude the nations when when they walk in here. Don't exclude the nations through a political correct philosophy that says we don't bring the gospel to the nations. God's calling the nations to himself. So now let's look at another thing that's going on here that that causes Jesus to flip tables. I think this one will hit all of us. Um, Remember, first of all, that, that a marketplace in a marketplace is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Those, those exist in every culture. And, and that going to market and getting the things you want is, is a good thing. So if you need some shoes, you take your $50, a little steep for me, but you do you, and you drive out to the, the Waterloo outlet to get yourself some shoes, and you walk in, you give them $50 for shoes. They wanted your $50 more than they wanted those shoes, you wanted those shoes more than you wanted the $50, and so you leave there with shoes, you're happy with the transaction, they leave there with your $50, they're happy with the transaction, that's a good thing. You've just interacted with another person, it was fair, everything was honest, that kind of marketplace, that kind of trade is good, and so God is not against commerce. That's that's a good thing, and it exists all over the place. So Jesus here is not against businesses, he's not against stores, He's not against being a consumer where you're supposed to be a consumer. But they had taken the marketplace, which is a good thing in its right place, and they turned the temple into the marketplace. So now to practice your religion, you had to be a consumer. You couldn't escape that. And so they made their temple the center of commerce. And so again, we we like the Jesus that turns over the tables, but if we're honest, consumer religion is right up our alley. Like, that's our thing. The same thing that he was flipping tables over there is something that we breathe in and out every day. So so what is it? What, What is consumer religion? What is he seeing there? What might he see in us? What is consumer Christianity? Well, in short, it's treating Christianity like a marketplace. It's treating Jesus and his church like commodities that we can buy so that we can get what we want. And there are a million ways that we do this, and I think once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. We're consumer Christians when we approach church as customers. We, we treat churches like they are the places that are supposed to impress us. It turns out I learned that people have actually reviewed Grace Road on uh, Yelp and on Google reviews. And so when I saw that, there was like this wave of fear that came over me like, oh no, what have they written? And so I started looking up some of these reviews and most of them were positive, so so that was good. You know, mostly four or five stars. Uh, One person wrote, they don't beg for money at all, unlike other churches. Four stars, so got that. Another person said it's entertaining without the loss of meaningful lessons. 
You're welcome. Thank Four stars. Uh, another person said something along the lines of, I'm glad that Jesus has preached, but the building's a little bit run down. Still four stars. No, I mean, it was just being honest. And, and these reviews were not mean-spirited. And I'm, a lot of you have actually written those reviews, and they were positive. So, so thanks for that. But, but I think what can happen so often is that we get so used to being a customer everywhere we get so used to being sold stuff everywhere. We, we get so used to just constantly always be shopping. The consumerism becomes how we affect all of our relationships. We look at our relationships and the one question we ask is the question that we ask of, of a mall, which is what am I going to get out of this? And then we'll do that with church. We'll treat our relationship with church like our relationship to a store that we're loyal to or like a company. And I think we fail to realize what a huge disconnect that is. Because just, I mean, think of what we're saying. We're saying, I am glad that Jesus, who died for our sins, is preached there. I'm glad that Jesus, who calls us to take up our crosses and follow him, is, is preached in that place. But the building's a little uncomfortable. Doesn't it? seem not to fit. Like the center of our faith is a man on a cross being killed. But then we review it like the main objective is our own comfort. Like isn't there a disconnect in the way we're thinking there? And again, the problem is not that we're customers and consumers at times. We should be. We should be consumers at Target. We should be consumers at Best Buy and on Amazon. And we should write honest, thorough reviews for the products that we buy but you just can't apply that consumer mindset to Christianity and to church and have it work. Because how many stars do you give a religion that promises you that in this life you will have trouble? Seems like one star. That's, that's not a five-star experience. How many stars do you give to a religion that says everybody who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted? Mm. That was not what I was shopping for. And then we, we shop for churches, and we actually call it doing that, and, and we look for a church that has good music and buildings, a pastor who's just funny enough, programs that are, are just right for our perceived needs, and in all of it, we want to get the best deal, because we want a church that has it all and does it all, but don't talk to us about money, because I want everyone else to pay for it. I'm looking for a deal here. So we become customers of church, and we practice the same kind of consumer religion that caused Jesus to flip over tables. And man, I know the problems start with us as church leaders. So often that we're tempted to create a consumer product in the church. Anyone who's a pastor my age who went to, to Bible college, we read in undergrad a book that told us that the way to plan a church is to survey the neighborhood and ask everybody in the neighborhood what they want a church to be, and then you make that thing. You make that consumer product. You, you do that thing that they want because they're the customer and the customer's always right. And then a lot of us also view our ministries almost like corporate jobs, where we stick around for a couple of years, build a resume, and then move on to a bigger church and a bigger market with a bigger platform as we climb the corporate ladder. And so this kind of consumer Christianity is everywhere. And we're consumer Christians when we treat our relationship to the church like our relationship to a store. 
Another way that we'll do it is, is when we look at the church and, and we expect accountability to only flow one way. That we can make demands on the church and on its programs, but no demands can be made on us. So we tend to believe I should shape the church, but the church shouldn't shape me. Because that's not how it works at a store. The store doesn't like challenge you on any of the things that you say the store should be. I mean, if you go into Target and you say, I want to buy some shoes, and the person says, that's not what you really want. I think you want a raincoat. You would say, who are you? I, I, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm the one who's, who's got the money in my pocket. I'm going to buy the thing I want. I know what I want. You don't. I'm the customer. The customer's always right. I'm the customer. I make the demands. But if demands are made on me, I'm just going to go to a different store. And so we'll shop for a church based on our comforts and our preferences. And we'll ask questions of the church that can be all of the wrong questions. And I know there are times to, to leave a church and times to go and find a different church, but are the questions we're asking consumer questions like what programs do they have, or are they questions like, will this church preach the word of God, even the unpopular parts that I might not like that I'm going to need to be shaped by? Will they challenge me? Will they hold me accountable? If I teach, will they correct my teaching if I'm wrong? Will they call me on a sin that could be destroying me? Will they call me to be pure? Will they call me to be faithful to my spouse? Will they remind me of Jesus and help me shatter my idols? And will they make it uncomfortable so that I can become more holy? Those are not the questions you ask when you're going to Target. But those are the questions we should be asking of the church. I think another way that we are consumer Christians is that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ like relationships with them don't matter and like they're disposable commodities. So we don't pursue life in the community. We don't pursue connections with other believers. We kind of want to just get in or get out. Or we have an ideal notion of community in our head. This is what it should be. I want authentic community. And we jump in and then we realize that in any real community there are tensions and disagreements and difficulties and we just bail out quickly and, and just look for the new product. So we, we start to treat Christianity less like a, a community that we're part of and more like a product that we shop for. And we do the whole thing because we've got an appetite to satisfy. There's, there's something that we want. And scripture warns us against treating the church that way. Listen to Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So he's setting it up. He's about to describe what an enemy of the cross of Christ is. And he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They live to satisfy an appetite. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He says, watch out, because there are some who, who live just to satisfy their own consumer appetites. Their appetite for comfort, their appetite for entertainment, their appetite for ease. A consumer Christian is concerned with their own preferences, 
But Jesus has called us to be concerned with, with Christ, with Christ being taught, his word being preached, the community being shepherded and challenged. A consumer just looks at the thing and says, I'm going to get what I can out of this place, which is exactly what the religious leaders said about those temple courts. I'm going to get what I can out of this. Let's set up a marketplace. And people who just want to consume always end up being opposed to Christ and his work. Philippians 3.18 said that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And then look at Luke 19.47 again. It says he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they couldn't find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Remember, this whole temple was designed to point to Jesus. This was all about Jesus. It was supposed to be a place that was all about Jesus. That's what the sacrifices were for. That's the one that the word that they taught was all about. But the people who are running the temple are the most opposed to Jesus. So the temple's doing the exact opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be pointing to Jesus, but it ends up killing Jesus. So things had gotten really bad. And so Jesus comes in to inspect this house, and the house is totally corrupt. And this is actually the second time that Jesus does a cleansing of the temple. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this cleansing of the temple during Holy Week when Jesus is just about to go to the cross. But the Gospel of John tells us about another cleansing of the temple that happened early in the ministry of Jesus. So, so early on, Jesus goes into the temple and he does this. He makes the whip. He drives out the money changers and, and cleanses the temple then. And now he comes back about three years later, comes back into those temple courts, and he sees that it is just as bad, if not worse, as it was three years ago. And way back in Leviticus, which we, we won't turn to now, there, there, was, there were some rules for the priests that in Leviticus 14, if your house started to get like a, a mold growing in it, they called it like a leprosy, so like a, a black mold or something, um, then the priest would be called to your house to inspect it. He'd have a look at it, and he would tell people, well, take out the parts of the house where that mold is growing so that this mold doesn't like totally destroy the house, make it a sick house, everybody gets sick, it, it could you know, kill people. So, so he says, take out that mold, and then he would come back later to see, after they had cleaned it up, to see if the mold was still spreading. And if upon second examination that mold was still spreading, they would tear down the house. And they did that to protect people. The house was doing more harm than good. And so here comes Jesus, and this is his second inspection of the house. And he looks around, and it's moldy to the core. So a big change was going to happen soon. In fact, 40 years after this second inspection, this temple would be torn down by an invading army, and not one stone would be left upon another. And when that temple came down, the whole temple system that had become corrupt would also come down. And Jesus was warning them that this was going to happen. During these days, he kept telling them this temple's going to be torn down. This, this era is going to end. And so imagine their shock. This is the best place on earth. This is the joy of the whole earth. Better is one day in these temple courts than thousands elsewhere. It's getting torn down. This is the place where God's glory dwelled. This is a place where God met with people. This was the center of community life for believing people. And Jesus says, guys, it's rotten to the core. It's not a house of prayer. The nations are excluded. It's a consumer experience. It's not a time of communing with God. It's all coming down. 
this whole temple system is going to end. Which is bad news, but there's really good news. And the really good news, and this is the the solution we need, is something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Announcing his own presence, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Truth is, in the temple, people weren't able to meet with God anymore. He got squeezed out by the marketplace. But now the new place where people can meet with God is in Christ. Jesus came to make worshipers who weren't tied to a place, but to a person. Jesus came to be the true and better people, or true and better temple. He's the joy of the whole earth. He's the one that it's better to be with than than to be thousands elsewhere. Different to the way the temple was operating in their day, your poverty doesn't keep you from Christ. In fact, it's the people who admit their need and their want, the people who are the most poor in spirit, people who feel like they're the most outsiders to the religious system, who are the the nearest to receiving him because of their brokenness. We can know God in Christ. When Jesus comes into the temple and he he starts messing up their their sacrificial marketplace, he sets these lambs free so that they're running all over the place, and, and part of what he's foreshadowing is that he's the lamb. In this new system, there wouldn't need to be any more sacrifice. There wouldn't need to be any more lambs because Jesus would be the once and final Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now Jesus is the priest that offers the sacrifice. Now Jesus is the temple that's not corrupt. And now we can approach God, but not in a geographical place. We approach God in Christ. And the reason that's possible is because Jesus who was not corrupt, like the corrupt temple, was torn down. He took on himself the sins of the people, and he suffered and died. And while he was on the cross, they mocked him. In Matthew 27, verse 40, it says, they they mocked him saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So the temple of Jesus' body was torn down, but then three days later, that temple was rebuilt. He did rise. And now because he paid for our sins, because he paid for our corruptions, we have a place where we can meet with God. And that place is not in any building. The place is not in any one city. That place is in him. So the call in all of our lives is to turn from our sin, to turn from our unbelief, to trust in him, to believe that he paid the price for our sins so that we could come near to that glory of God so we could experience that true joy of the whole earth. And believing in him, hanging our lives on him, we repent and we turn from our old way of life. And if that old way of life involves hatred and exclusion of others, Jesus offers forgiveness for that. If that old way of life involves consumerism and treating every relationship like I'm just a shopper and I'm here to get what I can out of it, Jesus offers forgiveness of that. But to receive it, we we repent and we believe. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you today and we ask that you would help us and heal us because we are, are stubborn people. We're often blind people who repeatedly and willfully stray away from you. 
Sometimes we don't see our sin. We don't see our disregard of the people that we treat as others. We don't see our own consumerism. We don't see how we were shoppers in so many of the relationships. This has become the air we breathe and we don't even notice it's there. And so Jesus, flip over our tables. We're quick to become corrupt like they did. So we confess that to you. We confess our lack of love for the nations. We confess our lack of concern that the gospel would be spread. We confess our lack of welcome for people that that don't seem like they fit. But Jesus, we thank you for your cross. Thank you that you shed your blood for our souls. Thank you that that blood speaks righteousness for us and gives us confidence to confess our failures to you today. Thank you that we can still approach you boldly even when we feel the weight of our sin and our shame because your blood was spilled. And your blood speaks a better word than the blood of all those bulls and goats that that covered sin for a time. Your blood removes our sin. Takes it as far from us as the east is from the west. Jesus, we thank you that as you hung on that, that cross, the judgment of God that was rightfully ours was poured out in, on you in the fullest measure. Thank you that we're surrounded by the steadfast and steady love of God because the Father turned his face away from you. And in light of that gospel and in light of who you are as our true and better temple, in light of your heart for the nations, in light of your calling on our lives to not be consumers, we pray that you would create in us clean hearts that are, are broken for all of our remaining struggles, but hearts that are utterly confident that your love is more than enough to reach us, that your blood is more than enough to forgive us. Give us that trust in abundance. Help us to continue to wrestle through this earthly journey and confess our sins quickly to you. But help us now to to sing with confidence that Jesus is enough for us, that our greatest need has been met, and that all that we really need, we have in him. And I pray this in Jesus' name.